Welcome to the Buddha Sasana podcast. This talk was given by Bhikkhu Chintita in Chisago City, Minnesota. Last week I took up the question of where supramundane joy and delight come from. We might include spiritual level bliss while we're at it. Our mundane psychological reward system keeps us thrashing between pleasure and pain, with no option for achieving lasting satisfaction in life. The Buddha and modern psychology agree on that, and it has an explanation in terms of genetic evolution. Yet, we have these exalted experiences, which can become quite lasting through Buddhist practice and, I dare say, through other forms of spiritual practice. The answer lies, it seems, in social rather than individual cognition, which gives us an alternative set of motivations and actually a different way of being in the world, one based in selflessness and cooperation rather than individual self-interest. Selflessness is or can become a state in which we dwell serene contented and happy, because we let go of personal striving, which is what apes do, in favor of cooperation, which is what humans do when we're not acting like apes, and which is even more productive in satisfying our material needs. I gave the example of moral communities last week, which we are all familiar with at some level or other, or at least I hope all of you are. They range from bowling teams or neighbors sharing care of children to whole religious and political movements. Workers' cooperatives can potentially be moral communities. These are worker-owned, operated, and managed corporations that contrast with the power structure of standard corporations in that all work on behalf of mutual interest rather than on behalf of profits for stockholders. They tend to be more productive, less likely to fail, and produce greater job satisfaction and overall well-being than traditional corporations. A Sangha is a grade A moral community designed to minimize self-interest within the community and establish harmony. A larger moral community of householders will tend to establish itself around a Sangha and around a common veneration of the Buddha and around guidance of the Dharma. The purpose of the evolutionary emergence of humans as hyper-social, hyper-cooperative beings is cooperation, sometimes even in large, complex enterprises. This raises the question, How does this work? We see humans busy in the physical world accomplishing things, but what is under the hood of these cooperative endeavors? If a machine is accomplishing something, 
we would like to have a look under the hood to see how it works. If there are wires under there, it's electrical. If there are turning gears, it's mechanical. If there are tubes, it's hydraulic. Or it may be a combination of these. What we find under the hood of society is symbolism. A symbolism is where one thing counts as something else. In other words, has a meaning. Symbolism might have begun with play, a common pursuit not only for humans but for mammals in general. For instance, in which puppies nip at each other and wrestle. And this counts as a fierce battle. Human children grab a broom and it counts as a horse. The most sophisticated and complex system of symbols in existence is human language, in which people wag their tongues and accounts as people, livestock, farms, and adventures to far-off exotic places, or as questions or commands, threats, hypotheticals, or perspectives. Symbols are placed in the space of shared human intentionality and somehow read by others who go off and do things as a result. Moral communities have symbolic ways of expressing membership in the community. Our bowling team wears yellow t-shirts and has a special salute. Bikers have uh, bikes, but also dress in dark colors with the bulk of their attire low on their bodies, big boots and leather pants. Texas Longhorn fans wear dark orange clothing. We already know how Amish and Buddhist monastics dress. Moral communities in most traditional cultures engage in ritual performances of dance and chanting together to underscore group solidarity. We are in the realm of ritual, and ritual is integral to all societies and cultures as a way to establish and communicate symbolically not only group identity, but to establish specific roles and functions within groups. The impulse to ritual is certainly a genetic adaptation to ensure coordination among humans. This may all be surprising, but let me give some examples from our culture. Shaking hands, hugging or saying, Honey, I'm home, upon re-encountering loved ones, proper ways to ask someone out on a date, standing and singing the national anthem, standing in line, birthday parties and other holidays, which normalize certain props and sequences of events. Formal dinners, again props, even proper arrangement of silverware and sequence of events. The use of words like sir or madame instead of hey buddy. Rules of etiquette. Sports events are highly ritualized. Celebrations, cocktail parties, and of course the military. I could go on and on. We have ceremonies for coming of age, weddings, divorces, trials, and sentencing are all ritualized. Graduations, inaugurations, firings, and resignations, and retirements, promotions, 
or demotions, receiving citizenship. All of these are physical observances, actions or props, but count as something else to provide a social coordinating function of one sort or another. They have a claim over our behavior within the system of social motivations. For instance, a wedding, a graduation, a coming of age, a retirement, being sentenced to prison, each mark a change of status, which carry new socially recognized expectations, obligations, privileges, and restrictions, and thereby influence the behavior of others and ourselves in a coordinated and cooperative way. A great book on ritual that I just read recently is Ritual Communication by Eric Rothenbuehler. He defines a ritual as a voluntary performance of appropriately patterned behavior to symbolically affect or participate in the serious life. Basically, our ritual activities put us into a symbolic world, the serious life of what we ought to do according to cultural norms. Notice that participation in ritual is voluntary and involves presenting ourselves as such and such a person and promising to be that person simply by participating in the ritual. This is how society is coordinated or organized, or how it was meant to be coordinated in our ancestral environment. Now, there are alternatives to ritual for coordinating and organizing society. Sometimes friendly people just get together on a small scale and do things. Sometimes there is a kind of contract. I'll do this if you give me this. This is what money is for. But money itself is entirely a symbolic construct. And finally, there is coercion, which is pervasive in our society for coordinating large enterprises, except for those few workers cooperatives. Many social scientists analyze society entirely in terms of power relationships. Ritual behavior is much more respectful and gentle as a coordinating mechanism. It's more like inviting people to dance and sing together rather than using cattle prods to get them to move. Rothenbuehler is one of the many academics who is carrying forth the work of Emile Durkheim, a hugely influential French sociologist who died in 1917. The terms moral community and serious life come from him. The serious life is serious because we endow it with symbolic meaning. Unfortunately, we live in a culture in which we are profoundly cynical about our symbolic world. We refuse to recognize that it exists or else feel uneasy about losing our individualism when we participate in it, even while it is the whole time quite pervasive even in our culture. This is like your toaster or your smartphone 
becoming cynical about electricity, or the brakes on your car becoming cynical about hydraulics, or your lawnmower refusing to participate in anything mechanical. Society no longer works so well. As a result, society has fallen back on coercion, and individualists blame society for all of their problems. Notice that we're getting a field of Buddhism. The Buddha did not think of these things. Durkheim did. But recall, we wanted to understand where exalted emotions come from. And we'll get back to that because that is important in Buddhism. Also, the Buddha lived in a culture in which participation in the serious life through ritual and the symbolically constituted world were universally accepted. Apparently, only in the modern West, sociologists and anthropologists tell us, out of all cultures, have people become cynical about such things, contrary to our human evolution. But without understanding the extent to which our reality is ritually constituted, there are aspects of Buddhism we will not understand. That's why I take this digression. Already we can begin to appreciate how the Sangha works, with no coercive authority, through ritual alone. By the way, I'm speaking with very little authority here myself. I'm not a sociologist. I've just read a few books, and I'm trying to give a rough outline of how these things fit together with Buddhism in my mind. I'm ultimately interested in a wider understanding of the role of selflessness and ethical behavior in the origin of supramundane, emotional, or so-called spiritual experiences, which seem to be rooted, as far as I can see, in social cognition and cannot be fully understood in individual terms, in contrast to the way Buddhism is often taught in the West. I think understanding this opens up a new perspective on Buddhist practice that otherwise might go unappreciated. This stuff is also really interesting. In order to cooperate in social enterprises, we choose various roles to perform. Mother, father, cook, candlestick maker, monk, lay devotee, biker chick, podcaster, patient at the dentist, and so on. Each of us performs many, many roles, some professionally or otherwise, in repeated contexts, some for very short periods of time. Roles to perform is an accurate description because these are generally highly scripted and performed publicly. We're like actors, taking on one role, then dropping that to take on another. In general, we maintain the roles and our relationships with others in in general, we maintain the roles and intersect with the roles of others ritually, for instance, in gestures of deference, in comportment, in taking on the trappings of a role, in following the script. Here's a Buddhist tip about taking on a role. When you take on a role, fulfill it utterly selflessly. 
be completely devoted to that role. Perform that role as skillfully as you can and become ever more skillful. Immerse yourself in that role as something to do well without distraction, entirely for its own sake. That is, without grasping at goals and results. Let the skillful performance of the role itself be your motivation. This is the basis of successful Buddhist practice and will produce exalted states of mind, even jhanas. With this level of devotion, the roles seem to carry us. Or not even that, we disappear and the roles perform themselves. Really, this ethic around social roles is made very clear in the Soto Zen tradition, in which I was once an ordained priest. I read a book once by Uchiyama Roshi, a Japanese Zen master called Opening the Hand of Thought. At the end, he provided seven bullet points for successful Zen practice, and I found one of them very perplexing. Base your life in vow and root it deeply. At that time, I was pretty much a Zen as self-help kind of guy. I had a strong Zen meditation practice, Zazen or Shikantaza. So what else did I need? This instruction became a koan for me, and gradually I realized that my teachers practiced like this, and I gradually got to the bottom of it. Whatever we take up, take it up with complete selfless devotion. The word devotion and the word vow are almost the same thing. The word vow gives us the root of devotion. This is how mindfulness is understood in the Zen tradition. Thich Nhat Hanh, the Vietnamese Zen master, taught the same thing. I now see that Burmese practice this way as well but in a more laid-back manner than the Japanese, and therefore not as obviously. This is what it means to be devout or to be a devotee. Two more words made from the root vow. Other people live much of their lives this way, and I think it's particularly characteristic of the truly religiously devout, seemingly of all faiths, but religions by no means have a monopoly on vow and devotion. Where it becomes most difficult to maintain devotion is where one feels resentment, and one easily feels resentment in coercive circumstances. The extremely low levels of job satisfaction in the USA indicate that selfless devotion is rather rare in the workplace. Last week, I quoted extensively the Buddha's admonitions about a set of prominent social roles, family roles, employment conditions, friendships, and the role of ascetics to householders. We noted that although asymmetrical, these roles were to be understood in a fair and balanced way. This is an invitation to selfless devotion on the part of those who occupy these roles. Japanese Soto Zen puts a lot of emphasis on work practice, highly ritualized, particularly on cooking, regarded as a profound practice opportunity 
requiring complete devotion to the gastronomic welfare of the Zen community. Cooking is an opportunity for devotion to one's role and also fulfills the Buddhist practice of virtue or generosity. At most Zen centers, one of the priests will serve all day in the kitchen as the cook, the tenzo, during a meditation retreat, while others, mostly lay devotees, will sit in meditation. The cook is expected to have all foods fully prepared and delivered at precisely the right time, no exceptions, and the kitchen kept spotless, leaving no trace. It is as intense as meditation practice and more challenging. Others are given the opportunity to serve the food ritually and precisely, and the rest to eat ritually. Following detailed instructions for the practice called Uriyoki. In the Theravada tradition, and actually following the Buddha's rules for monastics, we are not allowed to cook for ourselves or for anyone else. Japanese Buddhism is an outlier in this regard. The Buddha wanted the householders to take this on as a practice of devotion, as a practice of virtue and as a practice that creates strong social bonds between householders and monastics. Next week, I want to talk about deference in human relations and their ritual expression, particularly in Buddhism, in which all of this is very important, and talk generally about the importance of finding one's own rules and relationships in the sociocultural matrix in order to realize a meaningful life.